This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips. As the referendum on the Indigenous voice to Parliament takes shape, Rear Vision revisits an earlier referendum, one that allowed, shockingly for the first time, First Nations people to be counted as part of the Australian population. Next Saturday may fittingly be called the Day of the Aborigine, for it is the first occasion on which we, the Australian people, have for many years been called upon to think so seriously about our Aboriginal minority. Since the late 19th century, state governments had had almost complete control over the lives of Aboriginal people, who they married, where they lived, and what happened to their children. Many lived in squalor without access to education, employment, or health services. 56 years ago, a referendum was held that, it was hoped, would change all this through reform of Australia's constitution. Before the referendum, if you were a person of Aboriginal descent, you lived under six laws. There was a law in each state and each one differed. And you didn't know what the rules were when you moved from one state to another. You could land in jail, as many did, as many did. When we begged for new houses, they'd say there's no money. We're dependent on the Commonwealth. And it was vitally important to have that referendum to force the Commonwealth Government to be responsible for the Aboriginal people because only the Commonwealth had the necessary resources. Faith Bandler, one of the campaign leaders for the Yes Vote. When Australia became a federation at the turn of the 20th century, the Constitution stated that Aboriginal people were not to be counted in the census and that the Commonwealth Government could not make laws specifically for them, although it could make laws for any other race in Australia. Professor George Williams is a constitutional law expert at the University of New South Wales and the author, with Megan Davis, of a new book, Everything You Need to Know About the Referendum to Recognise Indigenous Australians. When you look at how the framers viewed Aboriginal people, it was in a particular and negative way. Uh, they saw Aboriginal peoples as being a dying race, and that was the language that was used at the time. By that, they thought that Aboriginal people would not survive British settlement, that as a group, they would die out. And uh, indeed, by today, uh, the framers would have thought there would not have been an Aboriginal person left in this country. That reflected the fact that vast numbers of Aboriginal people had died through disease, war, and uh, indeed for other reasons. And so it was thought back in 1901 that uh, that group did not have a long-term future in the nation. And indeed, we got a constitution that reflected that. It was based upon their exclusion that they weren't to form part of the long-term future of this country. And as a result, the constitution was deeply discriminatory and was predicated on them not being part of that nation-building moment. In the post-war period, most Aboriginal people still had little control over their own lives. John Maynard is Professor of Indigenous History at Newcastle University. Aboriginal people were under severe control, heavily restricted. Uh, in many instances, a greater number of the Aboriginal population were caged on uh, reserves and missions, um, government controlled, some church held. But the restrictions on Aboriginal life, I mean, were quite severe, mostly um, out of sight and out of mind. I mean, in closer proximity to certainly in the regional and country areas where their labour could be exploited, but also far enough away that they, they basically were not to be seen. 
everyday decisions on your life were completely taken away from you. I mean, what you could wear, who you could marry, if you got an education or not, if there was any employment, and your abode was under under inspection, you were under the control of a, of a manager. There were severe restrictions. I mean, you know, we look to South Africa with the apartheid system, and really you, you can draw comparatives of, to the severity of, of the treatment of the Aboriginal population at that time. Health statistics uh, were severe, and as I said, we're still we're still facing many of those things. That, you know, the the life expectancy of Aboriginal people even today in the twenty first century is um, you know well short of uh, our um, non Indigenous people. Dr. Sue Taff is a research fellow at the Indigenous Studies Centre at Monash University. I think in the 1950s it was a very small issue. I think most Australians knew nothing about Aboriginal people. I remember reading an Australia Day report in The Age in about 1960 where there's just no reference to the existence of Aboriginal Australians and it's all about how Australia Day is about celebrating uh, what we've achieved and also, and this is, was a very forward thinking, celebrating our new migrants who have come and have also become new Australians. So I think that Aboriginal people were really quite hidden and it wasn't really until things like the visit of the Queen in 1956 when people started, uh, I suppose it was local government organisations initially, started looking at the camps where dispossessed Aboriginal people were huddled outside the towns and started deciding that they had to clean them up or build a wall so that the Queen wouldn't see them. So there was, it was initially a small group of very principled people, but through the 50s, things really began to change. During the decade following the end of World War II, pressure began to build for change. Yeah, look, it didn't happen in five minutes and it certainly didn't just happen in the 50s either as well. I mean, there would have been a long history of Aboriginal political mobilisation, which for many historians, it didn't appear in the, in the history books that, you know, my grandfather was a very prominent early Aboriginal activist of the 1920s and he formed the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, the first united all Aboriginal organisation to form. And they were fighting for, for Aboriginal land rights, self-determination to protect Aboriginal kids being taken from their families, that Aboriginal people should control Aboriginal affairs and that we were citizens within our own country. That continued on through into the late 30s. We had the Day of Mourning protests with the 150th year celebrations of white occupation of this country. Things were slowed, I guess, I mean, in the political sense um, with the onset of World War II. And it was only in the aftermath of World War II that there was a revitalisation, I would say, of the very uh, strong Aboriginal political movement and non-Indigenous support that was beginning to um, come to, to come to light, and that certainly was the case through the through the fifties and on into the sixties. Where, and I think really the, the the turning point in the aftermath of World War Two and what happened to the Jewish people and the massive losses of life globally through the war and people oppressed people. What was happening around the globe to people started to um, twig people's consciousness, and um, that was a major impact. And I mean, certainly, I, I mean, I I was born in the fifties, fifty four, and you know, into the 60s, I mean, the big shift in change, if you like, was, I mean, the 60s was a, a very exciting time and musically, and but it was also a time of great social and political change globally, which was following on, as I said before, in the aftermath of World War II. And you had, you know, very visible 
civil rights movement in the United States with Dr Martin Luther King, a very divisive war in Vietnam. I mean, these things weren't missed. I mean, and we had the impact of television, firstly, uh, coming into being in Australia. And uh, many of these global events were being brought into people's lounge rooms and, and opened up discussions in the kitchen, if you like. But also there was a very much more um, presence of um, Aboriginal wrongs in the press and that was certainly through television as well as the medium. You know, the Charlie Perkins with the Freedom Rides in 1965 in New South Wales where he was on a bus with a bunch of non-Indigenous students from the University of Sydney who exposed the shocking segregation and absolutely horrific living conditions of many Aboriginal people across New South Wales at that particular point in time, not allowed into the local swimming pools, not allowed into the hotels, and again being locked out of the towns in many respects and uh, living as third-class citizens. And their living conditions at that time, as Perkins and the media showed at that point, were absolutely horrific. And I think it was also the gaze of, of the world that was coming in. And as I said, in the aftermath of World War II and the Jewish situation, the United Nations was actually casting an eye towards Australia with its treatment of Indigenous peoples. And um, those sorts of things made a big impact. And I mean, it certainly signalled the end of the White Australia policy, which was coming to its final timely end, not before time, I might add. So all of these significant events were fermenting in the background and bubbling away of the way that Aboriginal people were treated. And Aboriginal people, as I said, were stepping up to the plate in regards to that and ably supported by numerous uh, non-Indigenous supporters who were very vocal in fighting to make change. Professor Anne Curthoys is a historian and was an activist for Aboriginal rights at the time. This is the period, 1958, the Federal Council for Aboriginal Advancement is formed and, and a few years later, Torres Strait Islander is added into the title of that body and so it becomes FCATSI. And FCATSI is a very important body in pressing for changes to the constitution but I think the important thing to say is that's not all it does it's pressing on a lot of different fronts for kind of change particularly to do with pastoral wages you know Aboriginal people being paid low wages and it takes up a range of issues but certainly changes to the constitution is one of them so you've got that growth in what I would call these mixed race organizations that press a whole range of issues including a change to the constitution and there are other bodies that form that a lot of them get affiliated to FICATSI. I think a very important point is in the 60s there are all these pressures coming internationally so 1963 the UN declaration against um, all forms of racial discrimination which Australia is not abiding by and the federal government has to deal with that fact that it is a signatory to something a UN declaration but doesn't really have the power to enforce it at a state level, although it does a lot to persuade state governments to change some of the legislation so that it does conform. But that pressure, that international pressure, both at a government level but also in terms of people's ideas and Australians' awareness of what the rest of the world thinks, is a very important feature, I think, of people thinking about race relations in Australia and the situation of Aboriginal people. So you've got that external pressure, you've got local organisations. So then you have a series of actions, I think, which take place, like the Karma Petition of 1963, demanding land rights, effectively. 
And then what I've really written about, the Freedom Ride of um, 1965, which is the New South Wales action, but it is kind of responding, I think, to those international changes, also to those local organisations, and also just really to the general perception of the gap between policies of equality and inclusion and the reality of segregation and discrimination and exclusion. So that really is the context for the Freedom Ride. And then in 1966, there's the debate about pastoral wages and the case to do with pastoral wages in the Northern Territory. So you have that series of events, I think, leading up to 1967 and the decision to hold a referendum. And what I haven't gone into yet is I think that that goes right through from 57 to 67, that campaign. It's a 10-year-long campaign in the context of a lot of other campaigns, which gradually grows, I think, in popularity and effect because I think ideas about inequality and segregation really are changing in this period. Sue Taff says that the campaign over the 1967 constitutional referendum is a story in two parts. Firstly, the activists had to put pressure on the government to have a, a referendum and then, then they ran the campaign to persuade the people to vote yes. 1957 was the first petition that was drawn up in the post-war period and Jesse Street was involved with that and that was the Estonian Aboriginal Fellowship in, in Sydney. And then the Federal Council came into existence in 1958 and they ran a petition and collected signatures. But if I just go back, so 57 there was a campaign, 58 there was another campaign and then in 62 there was a national petition campaign and that was a sort of a huge exercise in trying to affect the consciousness of the of the white Australian population. So the goal was to see if they could get 250,000 signatures. They didn't quite make that, but they got over 100,000. Gordon Bryant was uh, the member for Wills down here in, um, in Melbourne and his parliamentary office became sort of a communication hub because remember, at this time in the, in the 1950s and early 1960s, long distance phone calls were expensive and so the activists would get together into his, into his office and ring up activists and people from all over Australia and find out what was going on. So the campaigning was happening all over the place, all over Australia, and the petitions were coming in and Gordon Bryant was then feeding them bit by bit into the parliament so that every day a parliamentary session for a period of time would begin with the reading of petitions, including Robert Menzies, who was the Prime Minister at the time, having to read a petition from his constituents asking for constitutional change. So that was the first stage and it was to alert the public to the injustices faced by Aboriginal Australians. The second stage was then to persuade the government that they needed to act. And part of what was happening there was to persuade the government that Section 51, subsection 26, that is with the, the people of any race other than the Aboriginal race in any state, that that was actually discriminatory. Menzies rejected that, pointed out that, of course, when that clause was inserted, it was to ensure that the special legislation that the federal government was thinking about would not affect Aboriginal people. What they were intending was to have special legislation to actually deport people who'd come from the islands, the Kanakas as they were called, and from India, uh, from Fiji, 
and from those people who have been brought in, enslaved really, to work on the on the sugarcane in Queensland. And so Section 51, that is the reference to special legislation, was so that the, the government at the time would be able to do something about that problem. So the activists in the 1950s argued quite specifically that this was a discriminatory clause. And even though Menzies pointed out that it wasn't intended as such, they were effective enough in their campaigning to point out and to persuade the public that in fact, indeed, it was discriminatory and that Aboriginal people were a people who should have the right to special legislation. And moreover, given the appalling way that they'd been treated by state governments, they would need special assistance in order to to gain access to education and housing and all of the things that had been specifically denied them by state governments in the past. And how did the campaign itself unfold? It wasn't until Holt became Prime Minister that the government agreed that they would hold this referendum. That was the beginning of 1967. And so it was the Federal Council for Aboriginal Advancement that then really ran, or other organisations as well, but uh, that body really organised and ran the, the campaign to alert the public that they had to vote yes, the Vote Yes campaign. So Aboriginal speakers would speak on city corners. Doug Nichols was, was busy um, with others outside the football grounds in Melbourne gathering signatures and trying to persuade people uh, that they should vote yes. There were campaigns on the radio. Faith Bandler was probably the most effective of the campaigners in using the media. She was a, an Islander woman who was involved in the organisation in Sydney, the Australian Aboriginal Fellowship, and she was a terrific presenter of the arguments. And so she really got the message out. She had friends in the media, and so campaigns were run, articles were, were written in the Women's Weekly, individual stories were told. Aboriginal people would say, I'm an Australian too. There were photographs of little Aboriginal boy and a little white boy holding hands together. It was a very emotional campaign, a campaign that really called on Australian voters, I think, to think of themselves and remember themselves as living in the land of the fair go, you know. That was what was pretty much drawn on. Vote yes for Aborigines, they want to be Australians too. Vote yes and give them rights and freedoms just like me and you. Vote yes for Aborigines. The result of the referendum on the Aboriginal question was a resounding triumph for the Aboriginal cause. Australia recorded a yes vote of nearly 91%. It's all the more significant when you recall that in all the federal referendums since Federation, 29 proposals have been rejected, only five have been accepted. The main thing to say about the result is that the 90.7% support, which is a huge support for any referendum, and I think a huge support for change. And in my mind, it's not only about the actual changes being proposed, that is, about the role of the Commonwealth Government or the inclusion in the census. I think it's really a vote more generally about discriminating and about treating people equally and getting rid of old habits of segregation. I think they're the kind of animating ideas and that part of the Australia being a more cosmopolitan and inclusive society and so on. And I think from Indigenous people's perspective, it really is about inclusion and getting the vote, even though a lot of people theoretically already had the vote. Many people were unaware that they had the vote. And so it becomes symbolic of a new political rights and new inclusion. 
So I think the um, high support for it is probably a surprise, I think, for a lot of people, but also indicative of that particular moment in Australian race relations history, if you like. Well, the referendum itself and the debate um, were two very different things. And when you look at the popular debate, the advertising and the ideas at the time were that we needed a referendum to make sure that Aboriginal people were citizens, uh, that they had the vote, that they had equality. But in fact, the referendum didn't deal with any of those things. Um, Aboriginal people were already citizens, even though they were denied some of the same rights. They'd already got the vote in 1962. And uh, in fact, the Constitution excluded them and treated them differently, but not in those ways. So what the change actually did was two things. It deleted a clause, section 127, that said that in reckoning the numbers of people in the Commonwealth, you can't count Aboriginal people. And the reason that was included was because it was thought that Aboriginal people would never be given the vote, and so you shouldn't include them for determining electoral districts and the like. So simply they couldn't be counted for that purpose. And that was one clause that was entirely removed. The other clause that was dealt with was the racist power in section 51, subsection 26 of the Constitution. It enabled the Parliament, including today, to make laws for the people of any race. But originally in 1901, that excluded people of the Aboriginal race, so every race but them. In 1967, the words other than the Aboriginal race were removed, so this racist power was extended to them by virtue of that, thereby enabling for the first time the Federal Parliament to make laws for Aboriginal people. So essentially it was a transfer of power from the states to the Commonwealth, but in doing so, uh, it did transfer power, but also included Aboriginal people within a power that very clearly was designed to enable negative and discriminatory laws on the basis of race. So both positive and negative consequences were open to the Commonwealth after that point when it came to making laws for Aboriginal people. There was no support mechanisms. There was no training for Aboriginal people who'd been under such tight, restrictive control. There was no transition period. The states basically wiped their hands of it and Aboriginal people were left like refugees in many respects of having to fend for themselves with no support, no encouragement and, as I said, no training or transition to step into this into this new space. Many did with the freedom that was available flee to the city, certainly Melbourne, and in a big way Redfern became a magnet for Aboriginal people looking for opportunities for work and to provide from their families in that respect. But um, well, how can you say that the, the hopes of you know land rights and an access to land and an economic revival and that Aboriginal people would be supported to build their own lives and, and greater educational opportunities would suddenly arise? And we know that that didn't happen for quite some time and Aboriginal people had to fight very hard to, to gain those spaces in regards to that. So it all fell away very quickly and we then had a lot of very disillusioned Aboriginal people, particularly the young, and I mean the people like Foley and Paul Coe and a whole host of others, you know, the Gary Williamses that came through at that particular point in time, I guess it was the, the planets had aligned that you had these highly intellectual, highly intelligent and articulate young Aboriginal people that burst onto the scene at that very moment in time. And they became the catalyst um, for, you know, the Indigenous political fight for the next two decades, which very significantly played out in the first instance with the establishment of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy on the lawns of Parliament House in 1972, which I have no hesitation in saying was a direct result of the um, the failure of the 67 referendum to, to deliver anything of um, gain for Aboriginal people or change. 
George Williams agrees that in the aftermath of the vote, little happened, but its significance can be seen in later decisions made by subsequent federal governments. Well, in fact, the initial result was very little, in fact, nothing of significance happened. And there was a sense that among many people that they'd fought this enormous battle. But even though Australians had voted overwhelmingly, 90% plus, and people thought generously to support Aboriginal people, that led to societal and other changes, but didn't lead to initially any legal change. In fact, the Liberal coalition government at the time indicated that they just didn't see the need to use the power. But things did change with the election of Gough Whitlam in 1972. He said that the 67 referendum provided him a mandate to start making laws for Aboriginal people. So we saw, uh, whether it be uh, land rights legislation, we also saw then and afterwards sacred sites legislation. In the 90s, we saw the Native Title Act. There's a large number of laws now on the books that reflect the achievement of the 67 referendum, national laws that could not have been made if that referendum had not been passed. But equally, you'd have to say some negative laws have also been passed using that power. The laws that prevented the Namanjiri women preventing the building of the Hindmarsh Island Bridge in the late 90s. Or other laws, again, that fix upon them because of their race for negative consequences. Hence, it's a power that cuts both ways. Long term, of course, we've got the Northern Territory land rights legislation that came in under Fraser. We've got the Mabo case. And we've got now, of course, the movement for recognition. So I think that you could argue, and certainly I'm not prepared to sort of say that everyone was in in this position, but for Aboriginal people, it was some kind of a watershed. It was non-Indigenous Australians saying, yes, 90% of them anyway, more than 90% of them saying, yes, we we see your argument. We see that um, you have rights as Australian citizens. And so I think it made the ground possible for the moves that followed to create greater justice and opportunities. So you don't think it was just a symbolic gesture? No, not at all, no. A number of the activists, Kath Walker, who we later know as Udrunu Knuckle, Barry Pittock, those two in particular, but others, even before the vote, were arguing that when it was successful, then they could press for legislation to support Aboriginal cultural rights. Then they could press for rights to land. Activists within the movement were already talking and thinking like this, but they had to have the federal government involved before they could begin those campaigns. And they did begin those campaigns immediately. The pressure for land rights began directly after. Well, it had started before, but once the referendum was campaign was over and the vote had taken place, the land rights campaign really took off. Looking back 50 years later, we can see the importance of the referendum to race relations in Australia, but its significance wasn't understood at the time. Well, in fact, we might look back today and expect that the Indigenous referendum was the issue of the day, that it attracted enormous attention, but in fact that wasn't the case. What people forget is two referendums were put on the same day. One was the referendum to change these parts of the constitution about Aboriginal peoples, but a second referendum was also put on the same day dealing with the composition of the federal parliament, which could have enabled there to be more members of the lower house of parliament. And it was that second question that actually got more interest and in fact was fought by politicians back and forth and excited controversy dissent. And uh, the Indigenous referendum largely slipped under the radar. It had enormous grassroots support. And I think people thought they just accepted it needed to be done. It wasn't something that excited a lot of controversy, didn't get as much media attention as a result. And it meant that people really focused on the other referendum. And in fact, if you look at one headline the day after in a leading newspaper, the headline was referendum fails. 
And that was because the other referendum on the parliament failed. It was seen as a big defeat for the Prime Minister. And there was a smaller story down the bottom saying, by the way, the Indigenous referendum, as expected, got up. And uh, today, of course, we've reversed things. We've forgotten about how people at the time saw it, and we rightly celebrate this important and enormous achievement. But that wasn't quite the way people saw it in 1967. Professor George Williams. The other guests were Dr Sue Taff, Professor John Maynard and Professor Anne Curthoys. You'll find their details on the Rear Vision website. And ever since that 1967 referendum, federal governments have tried and failed to set up organisations to give First Nations people a say in their own affairs. That story is coming up in the next Rear Vision. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineers Jenny Parsonage and Simon Branthwaite for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.